Hey everyone, got some rum and coke. I was working all week in the baking hot sun and had one of the worst days of my life at work today. So I think I deserve it. Fair warning, this episode's going to be unscripted. You don't know what I'm gonna say. I don't know what I'm gonna say. Better take a sip of rum and coke. Ugh, cheap stuff. Almost smells and tastes like I could remove paint with it. Anyway, anyone sick of hearing about the Orlando massacre yet? I've been so busy that I haven't had a chance to record a response to the incident until right now, which might actually be good in a way because it gave me some time to kind of cool down and reflect and hopefully some of what I'm going to say will be more thoughtful and measured than it may have been if I had just sat down on Sunday morning or afternoon and started recording. So I guess that's a good place to start. You know, what were my thoughts as I was watching the news unfold? So I got up earlier than usual last Sunday, and the first thing I did was um, grab my iPhone or my iPad and uh, check out the news. And so I go to the Huffington Post, and at the time, the death toll was only, only in quotes, at 20. And so I read 20 people killed in some kind of attack. So automatically, first thing that comes to my mind is radical Islam. (laughs) This is some kind of act of terrorism. Then I read on a bit, and it says 20 people killed at a gay nightclub. So then for a second, I'm thinking, okay, maybe this is one of those rare cases where a Christian extremist turns to violence, kind of like the rare abortion clinic bombing or whatever. And this is some kind of wacko anti-gay lone wolf or right-wing Christian wingnut or something like that. But then the perpetrator's name is released. And the guy has a quote-unquote Muslim-sounding name. And (laughs) as awful as it is, I'm thinking, Muslim guy, bunch of people gunned down. I'm thinking this is Islamic terrorism. And then they're mentioning that his family was originally from Afghanistan. Well, his parents, uh, he was born in the U.S. And then they mention that he may have ties to radical Islamists or Islamic groups or whatnot. And then, Uh, I thought someone made a mistake. So I'm reading this on the Huffington Post and it's saying 20 people killed. And I get a notification from, I don't know, it might have been NBC or CBS, one of the news apps I have on my uh, phone. And it says 50 people. And I'm like, what? It's kind of a disparity there. 20, 50, someone's got to be wrong. And then the Huffington Post catches up and indeed 50 people killed. And then I'm thinking to myself, you know, for a while, Europe seemed to be taking the brunt of these terror attacks. And I was thinking to myself, well, I guess it's our turn again. And I'm thinking to myself, 50 people, man, is that a lot. In comparison, uh, what was San Bernardino, 14 or 13? Yeah, I just pulled it up on my phone. San Bernardino was... 14 people, 22 seriously injured. Uh, This was 50 people killed. What was it, 40-something injured? 50 people, um, I mean, set aside terrorism for a moment. 
as you've probably heard by now, this is being described as the worst mass shooting in U.S. history, terrorist-related or not. And that high kill count almost reminded me of something we would hear coming out of Europe. And speaking of the San Bernardino massacre, I see a kind of parallel here where I think I described, I feel so weird using the word incident, it sounds way too whitewashed or mundane, but I described that incident, that attack, as being kind of a weird hybrid crime where, on the one hand, it was an act of Islamic terrorism. Uh, The husband and wife were jihadists or jihadis who had been planning an attack for a while. And on the other hand, to some degree, it seemed like a crime of opportunity. Uh, I think the guy was disgruntled. He had issues at work. And I think he had left the party that was going on, some kind of holiday party or something, wasn't it? And then, uh, you know, he comes back with his wife and unleashes hell on this uh, center that where I think they helped take care of special needs people or something like that. So it was like part terrorism, part workplace shooting. And I almost see this Orlando thing as being a hybrid as well, where it's part terrorism, part hate crime. And maybe the line's a little blurry, because like in the Judeo-Christian tradition, Islam also doesn't look very favorably on homosexuality, traditionally speaking. So in a way, you could say this anti-gay worldview borrows from his religion, but at the same time, I think there's probably more of a personal element to it as well. Some people are always speculating that maybe the guy was wrestling with his own sexuality or something like that. He had been using gay dating apps for quite some time before this attack, but I don't know if they've ever figured out if he actually hooked up with any guys or had any relationships with guys. Uh, Some people have suggested it could have been him just trying to get a feel for the local gay scene or whatever, because he had also visited Pulse Nightclub uh, on... um, a couple or several occasions, uh, at least once with his wife before the attack. So it could be maybe he was closeted and kind of a self-hating homosexual who is wrestling with this stuff. Or maybe he was just trying to get a feel for the situation and scope things out as he was planning his attack. But using gay dating apps seems a bit above and beyond. (laughs) You know, he probably could have done reconnaissance just by going to the club or whatever. Unless he had something else horrible in mind, like maybe he was going to meet guys through these apps and then kill them or something like that. Who knows? But let me jump back for a minute. Speaking of the Huffington Post, I've kind of cooled down a bit now, but I I took a screenshot of this reply in the comments section of the Huffington Post that I really liked. It was a comment thread that was going on as the news was still unfolding. And I remember at the time, I was really kind of like, yes, someone said it, you know, because here was another Islamist attack and or Islamic terrorist attack, (laughs) however you want to word it. And I was just waiting for the apologists to kind of start spinning it or start spewing all the obligatory nonsense about how 
this isn't an Islamic thing or this had nothing to do with religion and this and that. And when the kill count was still at 20, some guy on the Huffington Post had said, basically, there's no one to blame but Christianity. This has to do with the anti-gay environment that's a part of, you know, Christian culture or whatever. And I do agree that there is a lot of awful and offensive anti-gay rhetoric that does come from Christians, at least fundamentalist Christians, a lot of evangelicals in this country. Uh, But this guy weren't no Christian, and Islam, as I already pointed out, doesn't look favorably on homosexuality either. But I guess I'll read that screen cap. And the person responding happens to be gay. So they go by the uh, handle or alias Futura Labs, and they write, Steve Nolan Bob wants to be a good progressive. He thinks it is unfair to criticize Islam because Muslims are a minority and somehow because of that can do no wrong. It is progressives like Bob here who are best allies of mullahs. By parroting the tired all religions are, are the same, these so-called progressives are excusing Islamic terrorism, mass murdering of gay men in Islamic nations, and providing cover to Islamists. Bob, of course, is convinced he is simply being fair. Bob, as a gay guy, let me tell you this. I can handle a Christian lady refusing to bake me a cake as repulsive as she is. I can't handle Islamists shooting me or dropping me off of a tall building. Bob, please don't give cover to the worst of humanity. And I don't myself necessarily get as worked up when it comes to that schism between progressives and regressives, although uh, I often talk on this show about how opposed to political correctness I am. Uh, But I found that post very cathartic at the time that I read it. And I can remember thinking, you know, the news was still unfolding. At that point, we didn't know the guy's identity. And I'm like, how do you, how's this guy, how's he so certain that it was a Christian who did this? Not that I have any love for Christian dogma or feel any obligation to defend Christians as a non-believer. I I was just logically, factually, I was wondering, how, how can this guy be so sure it was a Christian? The guy's identity hasn't even come out yet, or at least that was the fact at the time. But I thought Futura Labs made some good points. Uh, the thing about, quote-unquote, all religions are the same. And of course, people want to believe that. It makes them feel good to embrace the spirit of pluralism or multiculturalism and not feel like they're being bigoted or unfair by characterizing any one group's traditions or beliefs as inferior to the next. And I really get that. I think it's a good and noble thing to have an inclusive attitude towards other groups and traditions. But within the limits of reason, you know, as the old saying goes, we should be open-minded, but not so open-minded that our brains fall out. And I guess what I mean by that is we should have an inclusive and accepting attitude towards other people and not judge them on skin color and superficial things like that. But if another group's beliefs contain 
dangerous or backwards ideas, we shouldn't stick our heads in the sand in the name of political correctness. And of course, as I pointed out twice already, both Judeo-Christianity and Islam look unfavorably, to put it mildly, on homosexuality. I don't think you can try to cherry pick some stuff in the New Testament that seems to imply that homosexuality is frowned upon. Um, I think obviously it's much more clear and evident in the Old Testament with, uh, of course, famously Leviticus talking about how, you know, the penalty for a man lying with another man should be death, etc. But fundamentalist Christians seem to really grab onto that. Not so much with the shellfish and the wearing of the mixed fabrics, but the, the men lying with other men. So even though both these traditions, uh, Islam and Judeo-Christianity, both disapprove of homosexuality, obviously in, in this day and age right now, you are much more likely to be killed for being gay in the quote-unquote Muslim world. Sorry, I know you don't like that phrase, Reza Aslan. It's my ongoing joke or attempt at a joke. I mean, there are obviously instances of anti-gay violence in the West, and you do have these cases that pop up once in a while, like the tragic case of Matthew Shepard, where people are killed for, for being gay. But obviously, you're much more likely to uh, be thrown off a building or put to death for being gay in the Muslim world, or at least in certain parts of the Muslim world, than in the West. And should you be unfortunate enough to find yourself the victim of an act of religiously inspired terrorism, uh, political correctness aside, we can probably all agree with 99% certainty that chances are it'll end up being an act of Muslim extremism. Or to illustrate the point another way, if you wake up tomorrow, turn on the TV, and hear that there was an act of terrorism somewhere in the world, where's your mind going to go? You're, you're probably going to assume that was an act of Islamic extremism, and most likely you'd be right. Otherwise, you have to kind of reach back not as far back as we used to have to. Uh, Sam Harris used to joke about how you had to go back to 1990-whatever to find an example of Christian terrorism in the States, you know, to uh, some distant abortion clinic bombing in the past. But I think we've had um, a couple of attacks on abortion clinics since then, still very few and far in between. And I think there was that whole controversy over Dr. Tiller, Remember, uh, Bill O'Reilly kept referring to this one doctor as Tiller, the baby killer, and uh, eventually some guy assassinated Tiller. Um, how much of a part Bill O'Reilly's rhetoric played in all that, I'm not sure. I think uh, Scott Roeder was the guy's name who killed uh, George Tiller. So every once in a while, we'll have something like that. And to be fair, there's also a, a lot of backwards stuff that goes on in the name of Christianity, say in parts of Africa where we have this uh, very kind of dangerous anti-gay climate that is fostered by Western fundamentalist evangelicals or um, Christian fundamentalist leaders in general, dumping their anti-gay rhetoric on the local populations. And there's also a case, in this day and age, people are still killed uh, for being witches, I believe, in parts of Africa. 
and in uh, India too, but in India, I don't think it has anything to do with Christianity. Um, I think it was last year I covered a story about a woman being hacked to death in India for supposedly being a witch. Religion, ain't it a beautiful thing? Uh, but, but generally speaking, you get my point. I shouldn't even have to say it. Right now in the present, we're not worrying about the Irish Republican Army or, uh, you know, whatever, where the the threat on the world stage when it comes to terrorism is Islamic extremism. If you hear in the news that there was a terrorist attack, dollars to donuts, probably the second time in my life I've used that phrase, it's going to be an act of Islamic extremism. So Christianity and Islam, whatever good there may be to be gleaned in those traditions, there's still a lot of ugly, backwards, and dangerous stuff that goes along with both traditions. But only one of them, Islam, or at least its extremist representatives, are killing people all over the globe right now in these ongoing, almost nonstop now, it seems, acts of terrorism. And uh, going back for a minute to that, topic of all religions being the same, I'm okay, you're okay type of airy-fairy stuff. Uh, That's one thing I've been thinking about a lot lately since this transpired. And I think in a way, I almost felt like, um, not to compare myself to Hitchens, but felt the way that I think Hitchens felt in the wake of 9-11. I think both Christopher Hitchens and Sam Harris have said that 9-11 really prodded them or acted like a catalyst to get them to be more open about their atheism and to be more open or more public with their criticism of religion. And I think, and I'm grossly paraphrasing here, but Hitchens, his point was that after 9-11, with 9-11, he really, really saw the damage that religion could do or that could be done in the name of religion. And don't get me wrong, I think this guy was driven by a bunch of factors. I think, obviously, religion was at least a part of his motivation. But as we find out more and more about this guy, supposedly he had behavioral issues and a tendency towards violent outbursts that literally go all the way back to the third grade. I was just listening to that uh, this morning on the way to work. I was listening to the Anderson Cooper podcast, and they were talking about that. So I think this guy obviously um, probably had some kind of mental or emotional issues. He was clearly either an anti-gay bigot, or a self-hating gay who is still wrestling with that. Um, Like I already said, at least part of his negative view of homosexuality was probably informed by his religious beliefs. And then, of course, I mean, a big part of it can be blamed on religion. The guy himself claims he was doing it in the name of religion. He called 911 to pledge allegiance to ISIS. And I forget, I've talked about this before, I forget if it's Harris or Hitchens, I think it was Hitchens, who said something to the effect of that when someone does something good in the name of religion, when they claim to be doing something good in the name of religion, 
no one ever challenges their motivation or their motives. You know, if you helped dig a well or, you know, you worked at a soup kitchen and you say it was your faith that drove you to, to do it. People will smile and applaud. Aren't you a wonderful person? What a wonderful thing faith and religion are. Um, but if you do something bad in the name of religion and you say so clearly and directly, people will still say things like, this has nothing to do with religion. This was a perversion of Islam or whatever, you know? And I'll give a little bit of credit to Reza Aslan on that account. Um, I find his airy-fairy, overly elastic, kind of diaphanous approach to defining religion to be vexing, to say the least. Uh, the, the religion or the texts are never to blame. It's how you interpret them or whatever. But I have heard him say, paraphrasing once again, that both ISIS and, you know, the, the nicest, gentlest sect uh, uh, strain of Islam, they're both legitimately Muslims. If you identify yourself as a Muslim in your drawing your beliefs from the holy text, even if you're interpreting it in your own way, then whether you're involved in some kind of life-affirming multi-faith outreach program or you're chopping off heads and throwing gays off buildings in the name of Islam, in both examples, both people can be legitimately called Muslims. We could try to get into a discussion like we could with Christianity about which way the texts really seem to lean on any given issue, say homosexuality, and judged on that, you could say, well, the one who's leaning more towards what the text actually seems to be saying is the one who's more authentically Christian or Muslim. But the problem is, of course, you can keep cherry picking and you can keep trying to twist your interpretation of the text to match your own worldview or inclinations. But of course, on the other hand, there's some stuff in religious texts that seems to be pretty clearly stated and not really all that open to interpretation. But that's one of my pet peeves. This had nothing to do with religion. Um, Islam is a religion of peace. Yeah, and here's, quickly, here, here's a couple of verses from the Quran. Uh, this looks like Surah 7, um, 80 through 84. And this seems to be referencing the biblical story of Sodom and Gomorrah. For ye practice your lusts on men in preference to women. Ye are indeed a people transgressing beyond bounds. And we rain down on them a shower of brimstone. And here's Surah 7, uh, verse or ayat 81. Will ye commit abominations such as no creature ever did before you? Then another one, of all creatures in the world will ye approach males and leave those whom Allah has created for you to be your mates. Nay, you, ye are a people transgressing. Then another one was Surah 4, 16. If two men among you are guilty of lewdness, punish them both. If they are repentant and amend, leave them alone. Well, <laughs> at least uh, a sliver of mercy there, I suppose. But this just goes to show the man-made nature of religion when it talks about abominations such as no creature ever did before you. Obviously, uh, 
not a lot of naturalists involved in the writing of the Quran. I know, I know, it was recited by an angel. Woo! Uh, <laughs> I think the alcohol's kicking in. Um, but obviously we know now that homosexuality is found in a plethora of animal species. And I've talked half-jokingly before, but I think it's a very good point, if I do say so myself, how I think the human sex drive is so strong, I can't imagine choosing your own sexual identity. And I make the joke about how when I was a kid, you know, I knew from an early age that I liked uh, girls, women. Um, I started to notice the curves of my female teachers. I started getting turned on by... uh, Suzanne Summers and old Three's Company reruns, and even Chitara from the Thundercats. And uh, then I noticed my heart would start to race when I'd lock eyes with like the girl sitting across from me. No one had to tell me that I was supposed to be interested in girls. If anything, I was raised Catholic, and uh, sex was like bad. It was a no-no. I had to like I had to hide my Samantha Fox posters under my bureau as a kid. I think, and I've mentioned, I think there sometimes can be cultural factors. Like if you look at some ancient cultures like ancient Greece or even ancient Rome, and, and you, we, can, we can see at times things like homosexuality or bisexuality were more the norm or more accepted. And there's cases, uh, say, with boarding schools that are, say, all-male or even in populations, I, I, I'm trying to think if this is, I think it's in the Middle East, where, or cultures rather, where the genders are separated, or the sexes are separated from an early age. So you have a bunch of developing young boys who never get to interact with the opposite sex, and you tend to see higher rates of homosexual activity. So I think there can be cultural influences. But generally speaking, I think the, the human sex drive is so powerful, so ingrained, I can't really imagine arbitrarily choosing a sexual preference, you know? And I guess part of my point is, if it's something that you can't choose and no one else is being harmed, it's, it's between two consenting adults or two consenting teenagers or whatever, then who cares? What is immoral about it? And this ties into that concept I like to talk about where I tend to divide morality into two different categories for the sake of simplicity. As a non-believer, I don't really believe in objective morality in some weird platonic sense. You know, like there's some transcendent concept of right and wrong, almost like this, that exists in some platonic realm of ideals or something like that. Um, But I think in in a way, it's almost as if there might as well be, because as I've described it many times before, I think we're kind of dualistic in the sense that I think we're shaped through evolution to be, on the one hand, tribalistic and violent, and on the other hand, to be social, altruistic, and empathetic. So unfortunately, there is that ugly tendency towards the in-group, out-group stuff. But I also think that we have that drive to be altruistic, to value group solidarity, 
to be able to put ourselves in the shoes of others, uh, to, to be empathetic and compassionate. And we see a lot of examples of altruism in the animal world and examples of, of what scientists would call proto-ethics. So I think in a way, in a sense, there are certain kind of universal standards of right and wrong. And obviously there's a lot of variation from culture to culture. But in most cases, if uh, whether you're in some small village in Papua New Guinea or in the middle of New York City, if you walk up in the middle of a crowd and punch an old woman in the face or something, you know, people are going to be shocked and aghast. People are going to be morally outraged. And so I think there, there is this kind of universe, in a sense, there are these um, universal moral standards. So in this kind of category of universal morality, I'd put things like, you know, you shouldn't kill, you shouldn't rape, you shouldn't steal. Although, unfortunately, exceptions are often made in times of war. You know, you, you hear about wartime atrocities and things going on that shock the moral conscience. And I think that's an example of that ugly base in-group, out-group type of mentality uh, at its darkest. You know, there's these wartime horror stories, uh, examples like the rape of Nan King and the My Lai Massacre, and of course the Holocaust, where you have, on a large scale, people who in general may have been decent human beings, as I think people have spoken of, of certain Nazi officers, they were probably great fathers, great to their dogs. Um, but you have people giving into this dark, ugly, tribalistic, in-group, out-group, groupthink type of mentality, our team versus their team, where you dehumanize the members of the other group, viewing them as if they're not even human, like they're garbage, simply because they're members of the quote-unquote Outgroup, but generally speaking, yeah, you know there are certain things that most cultures would agree on, like you, you shouldn't kill, you shouldn't rape, you shouldn't steal. Um, but then there's what I like to call arbitrary morality. These weird type of things, when when you take them and look at them objectively, there's nothing necessarily immoral or harmful about them, like the biblical prohibitions against things like eating shellfish or pork. Or there may have been, you know, safety reasons at some point. And maybe that helps explain the development of some of these prohibitions. But, you know, and things like wearing mixed fabrics. And I, and I would put in there homosexuality. Two people of the same sex having either a sexual or a loving romantic relationship with each other. If it's consensual between two adults, two teenagers, whatever it is. No one's being hurt. Who cares? Who the hell cares? Um, I don't see any objective reason why it should be viewed as harmful. But Phil, if everyone was gay, there'd be no human species. We'd all die off. Yeah, well, gays are the minority. And no matter how much society embraces or tolerates homosexuality, don't worry. There's always going to be some straight people around like me. There'll be plenty of people to carry on the human race until a huge planet-killing asteroid takes us out or something. Oh, and I think I'm going to have to apologize to Sam the Man. <laughs> He's this uh, YouTube subscriber that I really like and I interact with. And he prefers short episodes. Of a, this is going to be a kind of 
long meandering and possibly even a inebriated episode. Well, I'll, I'll be inebriated, not the episode. Episodes can't drink that I know of. And, uh, but one of the things that really got under my skin early with this story about the Orlando attack is the attitude of the terrorists or the gunman's father. And I know that maybe we're supposed to come some slack because not only did his kid just die, uh, rightfully, let's not open that whole can of worms about the death penalty and my thoughts or feelings on what should happen to certain violent criminals again. But I know there's probably a lot of people out there that think we should cut the guy some slack because not only is there the shock and grief of losing his kid, but also I imagine if the guy has a conscience, also the weight of the guilt and public shame of knowing his son is the one who committed this mass atrocity. But uh, right from the get-go, the guy was saying some weird stuff. And one of the first things he said was that this has nothing to do with religion Despite the fact that your son stopped to call 911 so he could publicly declare that he was uh, pledging himself to ISIS. And I believe, according to some of the witnesses, he did the obligatory Alu Akbar. Um, but this is a Huffington Post article, and it's entitled, Orlando Gunman's Father Says Son Was Upset by Gay Kiss not motivated by religion. Like, that's any better. Like, he saw two gay guys kissing, and he's like, ah! Rips open his trunk and grabs an AR-15. <laughs> you know, it's like, it, killing 50 people, is that the appropriate reaction to a gay kiss? And his father says in quotes, we're apologizing for the whole incident. It continues, the father of suspected Orlando gunman, Omar Mateen, says his son was not driven by religious ideology. Screw you, Pops. But did grow upset after seeing two gay men kissing in Miami a few months ago. And, you know, even if you want to try to be generous towards the guy and say, oh, you know, he just lost his son, found out his son is a dickheaded monster or whatever. I mean, this guy seems to have some anti-gay bias himself. He, and this dude's originally from Afghanistan. He, he seems to be repeatedly trying to switch the emphasis from Islam to homosexuality, like it was having to deal with the sight of men kissing and whatnot that drove his son mad. In a statement to NBC News, Mr. Sadiq said his family was in shock after the shooting at a gay nightclub early Sunday morning. At least 50 people are dead, more than 50 injured. We're apologizing for the whole incident. We weren't aware of any action he is taking. We are in shock like the whole country. That's kind of nice. This, uh, this had nothing to do with religion. He says his son got very angry when he saw two men kissing in downtown Miami a couple of months ago and believes that was part of his son's motive. Like his son was just like a, a normal, well-balanced, loving, good-natured human being. Saw two guys kissing and it was like flipped a switch. Yeah, whatever. Even if that was the case, what the hell would it say about your son? <laughs> that he was a raging, murderous homophobe? And uh, I'm trying to be responsible, and I always try to do my best to make sure I get my facts right. So I'm just going to add the disclaimer that I, I forget the exact wording, uh, but I was watching Anderson Cooper 360 a couple of days ago, or listening to the podcast, rather, and a CNN correspondent that uh, Anderson was talking to 
was discussing how the father said something else weird and upsetting. Supposedly, the father is quote-unquote involved in Afghani politics. I think he hosted his own little TV show. Uh, I was about to get disparaging that I host my own little podcast, you know. But I think he had even claimed to be the Afghani president. I think it depends on the exact source. I was reading a Washington Post article. Uh, An Afghani official who remained nameless said that he had claimed to be the president in exile. Others said that he merely claimed to be a presidential candidate, even though the elections were over. Yes, Reuters, father of Orlando Shooter, hosted political show on Afghan-Pakistan issues. Yeah, this is what I was looking for. The CNN correspondent was talking about how the father apologized to Afghanistan or the people of Afghanistan for his son's actions, which maybe sounds like a, a, a good thing, uh, maybe a little weird, apologizing to the people of Afghanistan for it. But he said, God will punish those involved in homosexuality. It's not an issue that humans should deal with. So even then, he's still saying that homosexuality, bad thing. But don't slaughter a nightclub full of people because of it. Let God take care of it. Very strange and backwards. Washington Post, Orlando suspect's father hosted a TV show and now pretends to be Afghan's president. So I think, as Anderson Cooper said, you know, it seems like maybe it wasn't just even religion that informed this guy's views on homosexuality, but he probably picked up a lot of this crap from his father. And, and his father is some old school guy from Afghanistan, so a lot of his father's prejudices towards homosexuals probably informed by religion, I, I would imagine. But before anyone from Afghanistan starts trying to preach to us morally, maybe they should do something about the Bakabazi dancing boys, <laughs> whatever it is I talked about a couple episodes back. Really disturbing stuff. But yeah, I think I got off track uh, characteristically. So I was talking about how I think in a way I kind of feel after this, the way Hitchens maybe felt after 9-11, where... You guys know me. I've been doing this show for a long time, and I try to be the nicer, gentler atheist. Uh, I even try to go out of my way, not even really go out of my way, because there are things I legitimately like about different faith traditions and religions. But, you know, I don't pull punches when I criticize religion, but I also talk about the things I like about different religious traditions. But I was so sickened by this even though, yeah, I'm sure religion wasn't the sole motivator. But I was even sickened by that disgusting, mealy-mouthed, predictable response about how, you know, religion's a good thing. This had nothing to do with religion. It was a perversion of religion. And I had this kind of epiphany, in a sense, that I think when people defend religion in the wake of events like this. In a way, they're validating and making excuses for religion, which I think, in the end, is going to help perpetuate this antiquated practice of people believing in ancient books that make supernatural claims that cannot be empirically proven and often inspire people to do maybe some good things, 
but also a lot of bad things too, like encouraging homophobia, inspiring acts of violence and terrorism in the name of religion, etc. And I, I feel like society gives religion a special pass, and it shouldn't. It's basically believing in that which can't be proven, embracing these antiquated texts as charming as they are at times, and as disturbing as they are at times, and not only encouraging believing in what can't be proven, but considering it noble. Think about the way people are praised and applauded for being people of faith, you know, for having the strength to believe, for embracing religion, these old, antiquated, man-made belief systems. And in a bizarre way, and this is going to sound really kind of loaded or inflammatory, but I almost feel like the people who make excuses for religion in the wake of incidents like this, they're a part of the problem. And, and in their own small way, they help facilitate this kind of thing going forward by putting religion up on a pedestal. Well, I think if we want to move forward as a species, and hopefully I'm not just saying this out of bias because I'm a non-believer, you know, uh, but I think everyone needs to adopt a more secular worldview where we focus on what's best about humanity, our propensity for empathy and altruism, compassion, love, etc. Not to get all mushy, you know, basically humanistic values. And we try to focus on that stuff, but do away with literal belief in ancient stories and putting these archaic and often bloody and backwards beliefs up on a pedestal and giving them a pass and trying to write them off as something special. So not only am I getting sick and tired of people killing in the name of religion, uh, which I should be, one person killed in the name of religion is too much. One innocent person killed for any reason is one too many. Um, but, you know, it just, it, it gets so exhausting, so tiring. If not day after day, week after week, hearing these awful stories about people being blown up and butchered and shot up in the name of some backwards ideology. And, and not only am I sick, like I said, of people getting killed in the name of religion, but I'm, I'm, I'm sick of people protecting religion and trying to validate religion. I was almost going to end it there. But I'm going to pour myself another Coke and spiced rum or spiced turpentine. And maybe talk a little about guns. I guess, in a way, guns are the other elephant in the room. Because you could argue if a religious nut couldn't get his hand on an AR-15, he wouldn't be able to quickly mow down 50 innocent people inside a nightclub. But that might be a bit of an oversimplification. And I have to admit, I'm probably more confused on the gun issue than I ever have been. For a long time, my view basically was myself. I'm not really into guns. Everything I know about guns probably comes from Resident Evil games. <laughs> and that's actually, sadly, that's true. 
And in that virtual world of video games, I, I probably know a lot about gun. I know a lot about the guns the characters in Resident Evil use. Uh, so if those are real guns, maybe I know more about firearms than I thought I did. But in real life, I've never really felt the desire to own a gun. When I was growing up, I might have told this story on the show before. Uh, my father used to go pheasant hunting. And I'm the youngest of four. I have a sister who's like 10 years older than me. Then uh, I have two older brothers who are like five and six or six and seven years older than me. And I'm trying to think, I think they might have gone hunting with my father, but I was too young. And I can remember as a little kid, my bedroom used to be connected to my parents' bedroom by a closet with sliding glass doors in each room. And I used to think it was like magical the way I could slide open the doors in my room and then come out into another room, you know? And uh, especially at Christmas time, because my parents used to stow the Christmas presents in that space in between. I can remember as like a little rug rat, like rummaging through the stack of plastic shopping bags looking for like Japanese robot toys and things, you know, my parents had bought me for Christmas. But one day I was making my way through the closet. I found this big thing. It was almost like a guitar case. I don't know if it was real leather or if it was vinyl made to look like cracked le leather, but it was like this big greenish case with a zipper on it. And I unzipped it and there was a shotgun inside. And my parents caught me. And shortly after that, the shotgun disappeared from the house and my father stopped going hunting. Whether it was my father or my mother's decision to get rid of the gun, I don't know. Then I think my brothers had a couple of BB gun rifles when we were growing up. Uh, other than that, you know, I don't have a lot of experience with guns. I never really had a desire to uh, shoot a gun. Um, not against it either. I have friends who own guns and friends who go to the shooting range and who've told me how much they like it. And if they were wanted to take me one day, I would probably go. I imagine it would be fun. You know, as much as there is to dislike about say Ted Nugent, uh, I'm a big fan of Anthony Bourdain. I remember like watching an episode where I think he goes and like cooks barbecue with Ted Nugent and they're shooting, uh, I don't know if they were semi-auto or fully automatic machine guns, but it looked like a blast. And even Anthony Bourdain, who was maybe a little hesitant at first, was talking about how kind of cathartic it was, you know, to shoot a gun. So I'm sure it is fun, you know. But my thinking used to be that, yeah, we do have the Second Amendment. I think people should be allowed to have firearms to protect themselves. But I feel like common sense would dictate that maybe there should be some kind of limit on what kind of firearm a, a civilian can own and maybe what size magazine or clips they can own or whatever, what capacity. And I have to admit, like I said, I don't know a lot about firearms, so there's some stuff that I'm confused about. Like I've, I've heard Sam Harris talk about this. Uh, Sam Harris often defends guns. And he talks about the list of big, scary guns, you know. I think he talked about some list that some politician had put forward about guns that they thought should be banned or something like that. And a lot of them 
aren't necessarily any more dangerous than, say, a handgun. They, they just look bigger and scarier. And of course, uh, and I think I talked to C-Webb about this, Chris Weber, who is um, who's actually a, a veteran. He was in the Army. And I asked him, I thought people were only allowed to own semi-automatic weapons. And he was saying that the ban on fully automatic weapons was overturned. And I don't know if the if it varies from state to state or what the federal or what federal law has to say about it. I honestly don't know. But it seems like generally speaking, people are allowed to have semi-automatic weapons. And the people who own or have knowledge about semi-automatic weapons often get frustrated or offended when people mistakenly describe them as fully automatic weapons. Uh, and of course, the difference, as I understand it, is semi-auto. Uh, every time you pull the trigger, you know, a round is fired. Fully auto, hold down the trigger, and there's the continuous stream. So, you know, Sam Harris makes that point about the big scary guns. But then um, I was listening to witnesses being from the Orlando attack being interviewed. And they were talking about how... The ammo and the gun the guy was using, the AR-15 or whatever it was, that these rounds were so long that they were sticking out of people's bodies in some cases. Like these really long, you know, almost missile-looking rounds, stick inches of it sticking out of people's bodies. And how that the particular ammunition this guy was using is designed to do tissue damage. And some expert was talking about how often, you know, this type of ammo will enter into the body, then go up and just rip its way through tissue, doing as much damage as possible. So if that's the case, you know, and here's just my layman's take on it. I'm like, why do people, why does a civilian necessarily need that type of ammo? Um, And I asked Chris last time we were doing an interview together. Uh, What do you think, because he's anti-gun, despite the fact that he's a vet. uh, Well, then again, sometimes vets and uh, police officers are uh, against civilians having certain types of firepower because they personally know the damage that can be done or wrought with uh, certain firearms. I asked him, I said, "Do do you think something needs to be done about the extended magazines, the extended clips. And he seems skeptical. Like he thought that the small amount of time it takes to change a clip or a magazine is so negligible that it doesn't really make that big of a difference. I don't know how anti-gun he is, but I know he's against civilians having firearms that are capable of committing this type of massive carnage in a, in a short period of time, you know? But I, don't, I think if decreasing the capacity of certain magazines or clips um, could maybe cause a, a mass murderer to have to reload more often and give people more of an opening in which to try to tackle or subdue the guy, I, I don't know. I mean, my layman's opinion, I think that would be a good thing. And, and I think, yeah, if, you know, if we could magically snap our fingers and make all the guns in the world disappear... Yeah, that'd probably be a great thing. But in reality, the genie's already out of the bottle. And I think that, well, and this is a bit of a red herring or a straw man. 
I was going to say, by banning guns, you would basically create this disparity where law-abiding citizens didn't own guns, but criminals still would. And there'd be a black market for guns, etc. But the reason why I say this is kind of a red herring is because I think many people who are for, you know, some people, they're sometimes painted by people on the right as being anti-gun or people who are promoting a gun ban. But there are people who are for kind of sensible gun reform or legislation to maybe try to ban or phase out the civilian ownership of certain types of firearms or maybe certain size magazines or clips or whatever. But no one's trying to take away everyone's pistol, shotgun, rifle. Uh, And that reminds me of the time that Joe Biden said something about, (laughs) what do you say, instead of like uh, one of those semi-automatic guns, go out and buy yourself a good shotgun if you're interested in home protection. And the first thing that came to my mind is just the awful carnage that a shotgun could do to a human body. Um, But, you know, no one's coming to take away everyone's guns. I think that's kind of a red herring argument that we hear coming from the right. That's not to say that there aren't people out there in the uh, population at large who don't harbor what I think is a kind of paranoid fear that people really are coming to take away their guns. I imagine most Americans who are for a sensible gun reform still envision people keeping their hunting rifles, their shotguns, their handguns for home protection. They just see people not being able to own the type of firepower and munitions that allow people to rip apart 50 people in a short span of time, you know? But then I, on the other hand, I understand like I was saying before, why some people might want the right to own one of those weapons so they can have fun at a gun range or something like that. But in the big picture, I guess, relatively, that would seem kind of selfish because, you know, if there's a weapon that could do mass carnage, but you want to uh, keep it just so you can blow off steam on the weekends or whatever or at the range. And I thought before, well, maybe you could do something where you have to, like, sign in at the range and you can still shoot that kind of weapon or something. I don't know. And then I'll listen to people like the Justicar, who I mentioned an episode or two back, who is former military, a former cop, and a, a gay atheist, and a great YouTuber who I love to watch. And he actually is directly responsible for some of my confusion when it comes to the, the gun thing. Because as I mentioned before, he knows a lot about American history. Uh, loves studying the Constitution, does some great talks on YouTube about the Second Amendment and about the American Revolution and American history, etc. And I think he does a great and convincing job of really defending the Second Amendment, um, even when it goes as far as to what type of firearm people should be able to have. So I don't know. I'm kind of confused on the gun issue. Me, myself, I'm not really that into guns. Um, It disturbs me greatly that we have the type of weapon out there available to civilians that if a hateful or unstable person gets their hands on it, even though it's just semi-auto and requires the repeated pull of a trigger, they can still very quickly butcher, shred 50 innocent human beings like trapped cattle 
And so in a way, not to sound too melodramatic, we're all susceptible to finding ourselves in a situation where we live or die by the whim of some madman with an overpowered firearm or whatever. And in a way, you know, there's sometimes in the wake of events like this, I just want to throw my hands up in the air when it comes to the gun issue and say, okay, you know, to the other side, to the right and say, you win, you win. I concede the point that America is probably never going to change. You know, we didn't change after Newtown. We didn't change after a school full of uh, little kids was slaughtered. We're probably not going to change after 50 adults are slaughtered in a nightclub. And I get it. I kind of get it that America really does have a gun culture. And I think it has to do largely in part with the Second Amendment and the way in which this country was founded. We were a country, a nation that was founded by violently throwing off the yoke of tyranny through armed rebellion. So, and then there's also, you know, the romance of the frontier. Um, And we all have the image in our heads of the father and son hunter and uh, that type of thing. Or the idea that your home is your castle. Uh, we, we see the image of the guy out in the frontier stepping out onto his doorstep, rifle in hand, you know, to protect his family. And like I said, no one's coming to take away your rifles and shotguns or, or whatever. But I think people that are really rabidly pro-gun see trying to place restrictions or limitations on firearms at all, limiting any type of firearm as a slippery slope or an encroachment on that right to bear arms and the gun lobby and right-wing politicians pander to that and so in a way i don't think i ever see america's gun culture going away i think it's too ingrained and i think right-wing politicians have their heels dug in too deeply uh but let me know what you guys think about all this But with all that being said, this has been The Week in Doubt. Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, blah, blah, blah. Do you want to support the show? Podbean. (laughs) Go Podbean. Look for The Week in Doubt. There's a PayPal widget at the bottom of the page. Alliteration. Or you can go to patreon.com slash theweekindoubt and support the show for as little as 99 cents. Quit anytime you want. Yeah. I'm going to keep drinking. Later, peeps.